Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the table at a dance competition? Exactly what are the judges looking for anyway? This is Making the Impact, a dance competition podcast. Each week, we'll cover a different topic related to the world of competitive dance from the perspective of the judges behind the table. The year 2020 has brought many uncomfortable topics to the forefront of everyone's minds, including dancers and dance educators. The role of race in the competitive dance world has been tiptoed around or outright ignored for too long, and we at Impact Dance Adjudicators and Making the Impact are committed to starting a dialogue in hopes that we can be the change we wish to see in our corner of the world. Today, we are joined by Michelle Tolson and Max Vasapoli for a conversation on race and dance. Hi, everyone. It's Courtney Ortiz, and welcome to this week's episode of Making the Impact, a dance competition podcast. I'm your host, and of course, I'm here with my co-host, Leslie Mueller. Hey, everybody. How you doing? We are very excited to talk about a very important topic today, the role of race in dance. And we have two wonderful IDA judges who you may have remembered from season one that we will introduce to you very soon. But before we do, we have some exciting announcements to share with all the listeners out there. And one of those is we launched some merch. How cool. Yes, so merch. <laughs> yeah, everybody's been asking for merch and especially all of our IDA judges really have wanted the merch. So we made it happen for them so they can rep IDA all over the place whenever they're traveling and judging for us. But not only for our judges, but we also launched merch for all of you listeners, all of the supporters of, of Making the Impact. You can now rock the Making the Impact merch and swag year round. So we have some really cute hoodies. We have some crew necks. We have these adorable little enamel pins that I love so much that you can add to your dance bag or your jacket or your backpack or whatever you want. So go check it out now on our website. It's IDA merch. It's that's what it's called. So it's at impactdanceadjudicators.com slash IDA merch. I'm sure you've heard us talk about all of our fabulous sponsors this season, but we can't make this podcast possible without the help of them. So we are so grateful for each and every sponsor that we have on the podcast. Yes, our first sponsor that we'd like to chat about today is Dance Costumes by Urzua. So many dancers might struggle with finding dancewear that fits their body. Maybe you have super long legs. I don't, but I'm very jealous. <laughs> Maybe you can't find the perfect option in your skin tone. You shouldn't have to pay more for custom dancewear because of your body shape. And Dance Costumes by Urzua is here to change that. They're launching a new line of dancewear that offers a variation of sizes and skin tones to flatter every dancer body. They also offer custom dance costumes for the competitive stage to make sure you stand out from the rest. Head on over to dancecostumesbyurzua.com to learn more about their costumes and dancewear and use the code IDA15 at checkout to receive 15% off of your order. Yay, we love you, Dance Costumes by Urzua. Definitely check them out if you're still hunting for that perfect costume. And I'm excited to introduce a new sponsor to the podcast who I personally have their socks. And I love them. And they are called Apollo Performance. If you haven't tried Apollo Shocks, they are socks that are designed and made for dancers. I love my socks so much. They give me so much support while I'm dancing, and I really can't believe how much better my body felt after wearing them. So I'd love for you all to check them out. I have so many different styles, and they're all fantastic. They are the only dance footwear accepted by the American Podiatric Medical Association. And they are running holiday sales right now that you won't want to miss. So head on over to apolloperformance.com to view all of their styles and order a pair for your dancer today. All right, it's time to dive into this discussion. And like I mentioned earlier, we have two returning IDA judges to the podcast joining us today. So we're going to have them introduce themselves. But let's first start with... A judge that you may remember from season one, episode 14, The Importance of Tap Class and Why You Should Be Taking It. I'd love to welcome back Michelle Tolson to the pod. That was a pretty incredible podcast and I can't wait for part two. Yes. <laughs> oh, you know there will be a, a part two. There has to be. <laughs> it seems so long ago. Pandemic, coronavirus, election shut down. I'm just so happy to be doing something normal today with you all, yes. my fellow dancers. Thank you so much for having me back. Of course. Very excited. I'm not going to talk about myself because you guys can Google me. Okay. <laughs> well, she's fabulous. I will. I will let you all know, though, uh, New Hampshire native, and I uh, am of mixed race. My mother's from Spain and my father was black. So I would be technically called mulatto. But I like to say Milano, like the cookies, especially the mint Milano, because it's like a little chocolate, a little white. That's kind of me. So I'm very excited to be on this podcast, this episode, because it does. It was interesting growing up where I grew up and it's been interesting moving forward in the dance world. So I appreciate you having me back on. 
Absolutely. We're very excited to hear all about your experiences. And thank you for joining us on this important discussion. And next up is a judge that you may remember from one of our hottest episodes, um, one of our most listened to episodes of season one, which was season one, episode 24, What Makes a Successful Musical Theater Entry. I'd love to welcome back Max Vasapoli to the podcast. Hello. Hi. How is everyone? Good, so I hope. Good. So good. Please, if you feel like sharing again. This is where I slate. This is where I brag. Yeah, um, bra- hello. You know, talk a little <laughs> bit about yourself. Just, just remind sure. everybody, you know, if they didn't get to listen to that awesome episode, which they should sure. go back and do. But, you know. Of course. Yeah. Hello, my name is Max Vasapoli. I'm an arts advocate, educator, and adjudicator based here in Philadelphia. I hold both my master's in education and BFA in musical theater from the University of the Arts. Currently, I serve as an academic advisor for high school programs at the University of Pennsylvania, or UPenn. Prior to my work in higher education, I performed and taught with Opera Philadelphia for several years, including teaching for their hip hopper program in partnership with Art Sanctuary. Art Sanctuary is a Philly-based arts organization dedicated to bringing Philadelphians together through the unique community-building power of Black art. After attending their teaching artist training in 2014, I decided to pursue my master's degree. And in 2017, I was the first man of color to graduate from my program in educational program design with a focus on educational technology. The, oh, thank you. <laughs> the, the 2021 competition season will be my eighth as an adjudicator, having judged extensively throughout the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. All right, Max. Well, a little bit about me. I'm from New Hampshire. <laughs> I have a cat. <laughs> Not I was on Radio at all. City. Yeah, Radio City Rockette for our hot second six years. Second Black Miss New Hampshire. Yes. Okay, boom. Period. Okay, boom. Boo. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we love. I'm so that. glad I didn't talk about myself. Oh my goodness, Max, you're incredible. Yeah. No, thank you. I would love to hear that. And being the first, I'm sure we'll get into more of this, but being the first of any. And, you know, the first I hope will come to to see soon, but it's exciting to be with another first holder, I suppose. Totally. Yay. Cool. Thanks, guys, for being here and sharing your time with us today. And we are just so grateful. Courtney and I have both collectively known both of you for quite a while. So we're just happy to be with with good company today. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really excited to have you both. So thank you for those lovely introductions. And I know that, Michelle, you uh, shared with us your ethnicity, your background. And I, if we would like to just kind of like initiate and start the conversation with that and just describing who we are, I'll start with me. My last name is Ortiz. So that is definitely coming from my Hispanic side. Um, my dad is half Italian, half Mexican. So I am actually a, a quarter Hispanic and I do identify as Latinx uh, typically. So I, um, and my mom is white. So that is kind of like my background. I'm a ambiguous mutt, if you will, but that's a little bit about my ethnicity and race. Cool. Max, can you tell us a little about, bit about yours? Uh, sure. I am adopted from Colombia. I'm an indigenous Latinx person. Yes. Cool. And I have just recently, this is Leslie speaking, recently found out my grandfather does a lot of genealogy and can trace my family all the way back to England in 1635. Wow. So I'm quite white, <laughs> if, if I have to be honest. And there's some German on my my uh, other side of the family. So so I'm so happy to have such a wide range yeah. of backgrounds here today. Yeah, this will be good, y'all. Well, let's just jump right in now that we kind of like got that going. We all know a little bit of a little bit of our backgrounds. And we kind of touched on this a little bit, in, even in some of your introductions. But I'd love to just kind of start like back from the beginning. What was your personal, if you have any personal experiences of what it was like growing up a dancer of color in your dance space, in your hometown where you grew up training, anything that you'd like to share initially from, you know, the start of your, your dance journey? Well, I grew up in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire, started dancing around eight or nine. And New Hampshire was very light. My father moved up there from Alabama because there were more job opportunities for a man of color. My mother came over from Spain with her first husband and they met each other and, and they got together and there we are. So my brother and I are both mixed children, and my mom and dad wanted us to be successful in life, but didn't quite know how to get us there, so they put us in the arts. My dance teachers were all pretty white. <laughs> it's New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. It's funny, though, when I was thinking about this, I was exposed to the gay community before the any other community mm-hmm. in the dance world. I took class 
at Allegro Academy of Dance, and the owner was Joel Conrad, a gay man that I did not know was gay. At eight, who cares? And my teacher there, Terry Morris, used to have viewing parties at her house. And I remember putting in her VHS, and she introduced me to to Electric Boogaloo and and all those dance movies that were coming out in the 80s and 90s, and which was really cool for me to see there were some options. And then I started traveling to Lawrence, Massachusetts to dance with a man, Joe Dufault, another gay man, did not know he was gay. I should have known because he did make me tap dance to Liberace. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but my my tap training was was substantial. I don't believe I had a teacher of color until I started traveling into Boston as a teenager to Jeanette Neal. My dad mm-hmm. would take my brother and I into Boston and I danced at, uh, with Julia Boynton, who was my tap teacher, but I danced with Adrian Hawkins, who still teaches at Jeanette Neal. And there was my first experience of a strong, incredible presence in the dance field. And then another one, when I finally moved to the New York tri-state area was Sheila Barker. Mm, and lovely. I used to take Frank Hatchett's class. So I've had some wonderful mentors growing up that exposed me to the world of dance. Pretty light in New Hampshire, but you know, once we traveled outside of New Hampshire, I started getting exposed, and and uh, I, I had I just had great teachers that just knew dance was important to me and knew to be exposed. That's great. Super interesting. We were talking just really briefly before we started, and we have a very similar background oh, as cool. far as where we grew up. I am adopted, and I also grew up in a predominantly white area of the Northeast. There were less than 10 students of color in my entire high school. Wow, wow. At the first dance studio, a smaller, more like ballet-focused studio that I went to, there were no other male dancers and almost no dancers of color. Uh, my second studio, which is a larger competition studio, had way more male dancers and a few other dancers of color. Uh, neither had instructors or staff of color. I think this environment, like Michelle was saying, really taught me well, especially coming later to dance, but there was no real representation or diversity in the earliest parts of my dance education. But I think that's part of why I started teaching, mm. to really be the educator I needed as a younger student. Max, it's so interesting you should say that, because I forget because it's so much a part of my life. My little brother and I um, were the only kids of color from first through eighth grade. Oh, wow. And then in our dance studio, when he started tap dancing, we were the only brown children. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now that you say that. So it was what it was, and it pushed us to be fo- go forward. And Max, I kind of agree with you. I think I... I've always loved teaching, but I'd love teaching to be, for someone to be able to say, there's somebody that looks like me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Missy Copeland just put out an article that says something very similar, that she you know, had been taken out of a few roles, and it took other mem- people of color, dancers of color, to really build her back up and say, this is, this is your, your dream. This is your destiny. You have to go and do this. And, mm. and, the, and how, it just really showed me how representation is so important, especially as you're growing up, and to not see other people that look like you is it's it's daunting it's really tough and uh, we'll talk about it later but i I said that it would have been much easier to quit than Mm. to stick it out at some points max when do you remember who your first teacher of color was your dance your first dance teacher of color i didn't have any dance teachers of color until college college. i didn't know and i didn't have any school teachers of color until high school wow i had very few peers of color in the studio but at the time i remember seeing myself in dancers like angel carrea and Jose, jose manuel carreño once I got to college, though, I remember taking Wayne David's open class here oh, at UART. He's so wonderful. He's incredible, right? And he just cultivates such a great environment. And it was so opposite to what I had seen in my training mm-hmm. that I was like, ho- I was hooked after that. And I, I went to every dance concert, every senior concert. <laughs> and I think that was when I really first saw myself represented on stage yeah. for the first time. Wow. So I had no teachers of color ever in school. But I was exposed to the Jazz Dance World Congress. Nice. Yes. And mm-hmm. when I went out to Chicago everybody was represented. Mm. It was African dance and Latin dance mm. and all these teachers. And I was like, there's a whole world I know nothing mm. about because of where I was. And at the time, because I'm old compared to you guys, there wasn't much going on. But it was so ex- eye-opening and so exciting to know that the professional world, or I thought at the time, would embrace mm. me. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm sure we're going to get there on that discussion for <laughs> sure. It's so inspiring to hear your guys' stories of your childhood, and I'd like to share a little bit of mine as well. I grew up in a very small town in Maryland, a rural town. Uh, we, uh, My high school was very small, and we, if you can imagine, we had bring your tractor to school day what? at my high school. <laughs> yes, that is a real thing. People drove their tractors to school, and the news came, and it was a whole thing. 
So you can kind of get an idea of what kind of world and environment I grew up surrounded by. And the great thing about dance was the fact that it wasn't like that small town at my dance studio. It was predominantly white. All of my teachers were white, but uh, we had a nice uh, mix of people of color and different ethnicities that attended my studio. So that was really, it felt like home for me because I didn't have that at school. And I was in a weird way, even though I'm only, you know, a quarter Hispanic, I was immediately kind of looked at as being a, a person of color and one of the few at my high school, which I never really realized that that affected me until I look back as an adult now. And I'm like, oh, wow, like, people would just just call me like literally and I don't know if this is that appropriate but people would be like calling me Mexican like straight up to my face and mm -hmm. I'm just like really like come you know and I didn't know how to really take it then and I just thought they were joking but now I'm just like wow that is not okay to to do so like as a child it was kind of interesting but for me I was uh, surrounded by um so many different ethnicities in my dance studio and I really felt like that even though I didn't have teachers of color I felt like that there were dancers that were embodying the different styles and just kind of I looked up to a lot of them in in my years there. So I felt like it really helped kind of create me and as a mover and a dancer in so many different ways that just my my white teachers couldn't really provide for me and show me that groove and show me that style. So I'm really grateful for the environment at my dance studio. And it was definitely kind of an escape for me that I didn't realize until growing up and looking back at it that like, wow, I'm. I'm glad that I, I had that outlet to go to. So um, I really thank dance for that. And I, I, you know, looking back, I don't know if I ever had a teacher of color either. I, I, maybe a guest teacher here and there, but um, maybe at a convention. But besides that, in my hometown, it, it, it didn't really exist. So it's interesting. Yeah, I tend to be that, that first teacher of color for, te for schools right. when I guessed. Right. And I'm okay with that. I'm glad they're exposed to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is... I just, I just think we're missing the boat on, on excellent teachers. Absolutely. Yeah. So going into more of our, like, since we all are now adults and are teachers ourselves, what's missing? What can we do? Because like we've all said, I mean, I was in the same boat. I didn't have, I had plenty of school teachers of color. I lived in a very racially diverse area of a suburb of Atlanta, but in the dance world, I didn't experience a, mm. a teacher of color until uh, college as well. And even then, I was at a school in the middle of Oklahoma, so I had mm. one teacher of color. So, you know, as we move forward in our teaching journeys, you know, you two, I'm interested to hear being a teacher of color, are you at studios that embrace that? Are you the only one? How do you feel teaching students as a teacher of color? Are you teaching other dancers of color? Are you teaching mostly white students? What's sort of your, your deal with that? Yeah, this is an interesting question. And I think it really dives into the type of work that you go towards as uh, any educator or any artist, right? And I think, you know, uh, being a younger person and kind of going through kind of what we've all talked about, feeling lonely, feeling not really having someone or many people to look up to that looked like us. I think once I took some autonomy over my own dance education, I was really drawn to kind of redirecting and really focusing on creators, educators, performers of color. And I think this, again, like defined the type of work I wanted to create and the type of opportunities I went after. So to answer your question, Leslie, I think um, I have a list, to be honest with you, of like uh, of, of some of the inclusive practices dance studio owners can, can kind of bring themselves. I don't want to say it's only for educators of color or only mm. for white educators. This is kind of, we all have to be around this. It's not something, it's not enough to be just casually intolerant or tolerant. We have to be anti-racist. Mm -hmm. This has been a huge year for civil rights, and we, we, we can't look away at this point. Mm -hmm. It's global. Mm -hmm. um, and especially our, our students are the people who are in the middle of this, truly, like saving the world on TikTok right now. And <laughs> quite, it's literally, so in, yeah. quite literally. And so it's very important that we, we serve them and we let them know that this is a creative space and that this is a very safe space. I also think it's vital that teachers spend time themselves researching black and brown history, dance history specifically, in order to share with their students. Mm -hmm. Uh, dedicate a month of your time to exploring Black dance history with your students. It's important that they understand historical context of dance, especially if they want to go further and, and pursue it professionally. If you've ever taken a drop-in class with Sammy Reyes, he educates students on different styles of hip-hop, like whacking, popping, breaking, during his warm-up, mm. before the combination. It's, it's so brilliant. It's like very subversive 
education, but I think that's, that's the type of thing that I'm talking about. Additionally, it's vital to seek out teachers of color, not just for hip hop or tap, mm. but for ballet and modern too. If those teachers had like specialize in a specific style of dance, like African, flamenco, vogue, anything, ask them for a series of classes in that unique style as well. This is part of the appropriation versus appreciation conversation. Mm -hmm. I think of dance as a language and it's the best way to practice a new language is with a native speaker. That leads me second to producerial and directorial. Dance has always been reflective of society. So we are bound to see numbers about this year, protesting, masks. And as a creative outlet for students, we want to foster that impulse to create while also being very sensitive about creating something for the stage, which is meant for entertainment, right? Mm -hmm. So we're asking students to use real life tragedy or trauma to create a piece that can be, it can be kind of exploitative and and makes our role as judges really hard. Mm -hmm. I think funnel that energy into a choreography, into a choreography unit or an acting exercise maybe instead of a competition piece. Do you want me to keep going? (laughs) I have a list, I have a list. And then the, the, one of the other things we talked about or we kind of asked about was costuming. And I want to mm-hmm. shout out specifically the International Association of Blacks in Dance for their list of black dancewear companies offering a wide selection of active dancewear in every shade. So definitely go take a look at them and the work they're doing. There's a pretty concept, comprehensive list. But I'm sure there's more out there. Which brings me to my last point, which is ask. If you have a question about how a dancer will do their hair or makeup, which costuming they prefer, their music choice, Anything that you feel, you know, runs this type of more identity-based choice-making, ask. Ask and listen. This is how we invite students to the collaborative process and develop their own aesthetic. Some students may be way more comfortable talking about their race, ethnicity, or background, and others may not Mm -hmm. be. The first step is to ask, and the second step is to listen. And I think that's true also for situations like this. I know Courtney and her team very well. I ordinarily wouldn't open up like this to strangers (laughs) about race, identity, growing up. So even among your teachers, your parents, your staff, your peers, ask first and listen second. Great. Well, thanks. thanks. That's all we needed for today. Thank you. We'll see you all next time. I knew Max would come with it. He he was going to come with a dissertation. I was ready for it. Always. Um, But I I have something that, Leslie, the one thing I think, Max, that we didn't touch upon because you're... Your dissertation was amazing just now. And you Thank won you. my Miss America Award. Um, <laughs> yes, honey, you better wait. Yes. Um, you had said what's missing. Yeah. And I think that, I don't think that anything's missing. I think that in the Black community, uh, not the whole community, dance is a luxury. Mm-hmm. So you sometimes have to choose what you can do. And you have to decide where you're going to put your money. And moving forward, I'm sure a lot of these people, when they go on to college, are not thinking about opening studios. We have to think about things that will support families. So I think that's one reason, possibly 80s, 90s, I'm not talking so much now, that we didn't have as many dance studios, uh, black dance studios, black owned dance studios. But the other problem I see as a judge, and I'm going on 21 years of judging, I have seen, this is the old lady in me, I have seen some amazing black studios come in and present and other judges not understanding their presentation Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. their flavor or their style. Mm -hmm. And so they're not rewarded for what they do, which is disheartening. And I don't think the dance competition world is fully diverse enough yet. And one of the reasons I work for IBA, because I know that our staff is diverse. I want to work with people of different colors, ethnicities that teach me. One of my very good friends, Crystal Frazier, was at UArts and she had her own all-female hip-hop company. And she taught at Hope College, and now she's at Point Park, and she does the same thing. She doesn't just teach you the steps. She tells you where it comes from, mm. who the person was that developed it. I try to do that with my tap classes. Do you know the difference even between rhythm and Broadway tap? And who would you consider a Broadway tapper, mm-hmm. and who would you consider a rhythm tapper? Do you know historical female tappers? Do you know contemporary female tappers? Like, they don't even know that. So how can we think expand? ladies. Go look up think ladies, right? right? I mean, that's the easiest one, right? There's so many ladies now, but right. Eleanor Powell, the people they don't know about, they can't even come up with <laughs> Shirley Temple. Right. Oh, hmm. there's they a step Shirley named Temple. After her, for goodness sake. <laughs> right. Like, uh, Shirley Temple. But she was taught by uh, Bojangles. The black man. Yeah. Right. Who's one of the greatest historical tap dancers we have. Yeah. So if we don't know as teachers, white, black, brown, Asian, yellow, green, I don't care, how can we get this to our students and so that they can understand? where their dance form is coming from and connect to it a little bit more. So I, I think some of it might have been economy at one point, right. but I also think people have decided just to open studios because they think it's easy business. And it is not. Right. It is not easy business. 
You have to be a psychologist. You have to be a financial analyst. You need to be a manager. You need to be a customer. And that's why I didn't open the studio. That's why I just teach. I don't want to deal with all that. I just want the creativity. I want to be able to give freely and not have to worry about the other aspects of it. But Max, you also made another great point. Back in the day, my mom used to dye my tights in Mm. tea. Mm -hmm so that they would match my skin tone. And even when I was a rockette, they still, back in the day, were not matching our skin tone yet. Really? Tights. I didn't know that. Only very yeah, recently. Yeah, that happened only very, really? yeah. So I was a rockette from 97 to 2002, and that six-year window, we were starting to go through it. Hmm. We People were asking to see some change, and, and our shoes were all that suntan color. So my girlfriend, Kisa, looked pretty darn ashy because she black. <laughs> um, she is, and y'all know Kisa, she, she's great. And she was our center girl. Yeah. But she she looked ashy she had in those to wear sun tan tights. Mm. And and Kisa has beautiful beautiful dark ebony skin. Wow. And I can't like I can't even Sure does. I mean I've seen the pictures so I know it was true yep. and it just it just boggles my mind to continue to see that on a competition stage where as Max mentioned, what's the name of the association again so we can link to it? It's the International Association of Blacks in Dance. So and they on their website they have a list of I can read them. I have them here. Yeah, I'm sure um, we know but, some of them. Um, Aurora Tights. Blends is yep. on there, I'm Blends. sure. Blends is on yep. here. Ballet Cafe Naturals. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that one. Uh, Blends Apparel. Blends with a Z. Fleshtone.net. Mahogany Blues Dance Apparel. Oh, Miss, that's a cute name. Yeah, right. Miss Rose Dance Closet. And um, the last one is a little scandalous. It's Nude Bar, but as in bar, like ballet okay. bar. So nude, B-A-R-R-E dot com. Awesome. Um, oh, thanks these, for clarifying, because I'd be at the other nude bar. <laughs> yeah, you want to be sure with some of these are a little, um, uh, they're very uh, sensual, let's say. Um, but these are specifically Black-owned businesses and, and that, that focus on really having a full range of skin tones. Right. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, as a as a as a white person judging on stage, it did always, you know, I think before people were really having this conversation on mass when I first began judging, it just always made me kind of tilt my head a little like, well, oh, I think those those dancers should have these tights that are ma- that match their skin, just like that other dancer has tights that match her skin. And then you started looking at the big companies, your blocks, your capizios, your, you know, Gaynor Mendons, your everybody else, they didn't even have that available. 10 years ago. And so, you know, Mm-mm, thankfully, yeah. we do have these black owned businesses who are focusing on that. And finally, you know, the summer, I think, is a lot of us mm-hmm. in the industry pushed for and noticed and really wanted to create the change. Almost every big company now is now offering point shoes or starting to offer point shoes in a range of colors, which was 100% and character, not shoes. And character shoes too. some character shoes. I see. Yep. It's tough, though, because I remember like the 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 reasoning behind the Rockettes back in my day, not getting tights that match your skin tone is that it would take away from the uniformity. Really? But if from here up... <laughs> right. You're also not from uniform. My, from my neck up, if I'm not the same as everybody else. It, so that was, that was the reasoning. And as a judge now, I do actually talk about tights, but I generally only do it for soloists. Also, I know, again, financially, it's hard yes. to get multiple pairs of tights, mm-hmm. especially if you're a child that's not a suntan right. color. Mm-hmm. So... If it's a soloist, though, I want to see them look their best. Yeah. That also means down to their shoes. Yep. If you, I don't want to see you in, in tights that match your skin tone and then some ashy nope. dance paws or turners. Nope. Everything needs to be streamlined to make you give you that beautiful line. And tap shoes, I think, are even easier now to do. I mean, there are so many custom tap shoes. Mm-hmm. Not about your own color, but you can do that with anything. Right. So I just think it's really important for, for dance teachers and choreographers. I think it's more dance teachers. To understand that giving their dancer their identity mm-hmm. on stage is so helpful for a dancer to perform even better. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking of costume companies in general, and I'm sure we've all experienced this before, but if there's ever any sort of like mesh or skin tone color a part of the costume, it's always going to be mm-hmm. light. Light. And my mom would cut it yep. out, dye yep. it. And sew it back exactly. in for me. And the same with the straps yeah. on the, yep. old, you know, how they had those elastic straps. She would take those off, dye them in tea for me so that they match my skin tone. And that's 80s. Yeah. Right. And why haven't things have changed still? Right. And there's you still know, kids that are having to do that. They're, yeah. Exactly. Like, as the costume companies evolve, and, you know, if the, if the shoe companies have finally got the hint, hey, maybe we need to have every color. Yeah. skin tone color for which, not more money yes for not a yes, longer ship date not an upcharge it needs and like you know having worked in that industry briefly you know the argument always is but we're not going to sell a lot of it 
It's not going to make a lot of money. That's I the can't argument? Just, yes. I can't have it in oh, stock. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And, and my argument back to that has always been you have to have it in stock. It is unfair. Yes. That's it's it's inequality at its finest mm-hmm. is saying this color I'm not stocking, even though this color is needed by a group of people. Wow. Generally, mm-hmm. just like any other, mm-hmm. you know, color of dance shoe. So that's, you know, it's definitely there's a business perspective to think about when it comes down to that stuff. But I'm I'm solely of the opinion that it needs to be done. Period. Mm-hmm. The end. It needs to be done. And if it can't be done, I'm shopping somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or we're Max, Courtney, Leslie, we're all going to start. We're going to make our own costumes from now on to send them out. It's our next business. There we go. The new, the, the next addition to IDA right. costume company. Exactly. Well, and Max, I wanted to say something else. In your one of your last statements, I thought was so brilliant. The first step is to ask. The second step is to listen. But then I would add a third step, and that's to implement. Mm. Because you you Correct. can listen, but then you have to do something about what you've heard. Mm-hmm. You know, there has to be action taken when you've listened and heard. You know what what your clients need as humans. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think it even comes down to dancers. It's just, you know, any business needs to ask, listen, and imp- implement. Even as somebody as big as the Radio City Rockettes. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, you know, this year with everything that's happened, we formed our own Rockettes of Color alumni. And when you think about, what is this, 87 years the Rockettes have been around? In that time, our first one, wait, I believe I have our list because I do our social media. <laughs> our first... Our first person of color was 1985. That's the year wow. I was born. That was 35 and she years was, ago. <gasps> yeah, and she was Asian because that's easier to blend in. Oh my gosh. Wow. And then our first African-American woman was 1987. Okay. Wow. And I started in 1997. So I was the 12th, yeah, 12th wow. person of color to and be a And Michelle, rocket. can you remind us how many women are on the line? In New York, mm-hmm. there are 36 times mm-hmm. two. So how many is there? And I can't the, do math. Mm-hmm. 72. 72 plus swing. So let's say 80. And then you had the touring casts back in the day. And then we had the, yeah. And there was, that's a half. So that's 16 in multiple cities. Wow. So you're telling me you were the 12th person of color, period, out of all of those people. And the amount of years prior. Right. Oh my God. Like those numbers. I mean, when you, when you say it by itself without the rest of the numbers, it, it's baffling, but it's still like, okay, well, I guess that's progress. But then you hear those numbers and- yeah, our, wow. our biggest swing, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They hired seven people of color in 2000. That's the highest that I have on on our list. Do you feel like that, like through your research and, and watching throughout the past few years and in the more recent years, has, has that changed? Has, has the uh, percentage of people of color on the line adjusted at all? Oh, uh, yes. Yes. But... But you still only see one for social media. Right. You'll still see one or two for the parade. We're still not going to make it. If there's six of you, you won't see all six mm. doing something right. together. But I am happy to see more girls of color. And I am happy to see them wearing tights and shoes that match. Yeah. That makes me happy for them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Michelle, are there people who are like stage direction, stage directors, choreographer, you know, whatever, dance captains, any production folks of color in, in that sense that are creatives of color? In your time, not when I was not when I was there. No, Mm. that's so that's part of the bigger systemic issue here. Yeah. Well, and I think we've I think we've maybe touched on this in a couple of other episodes, or even just some of us personally as friends talking that it is very difficult as people from like the top to create change. In my opinion, the change has to come from the bottom, but which also has to come from the top. It's like a very vicious cycle of. Where do we mm-hmm. fix, where do we start fixing this problem? Because if there's not, you know, if, if you don't have somebody to look up to in a professional sense as a child, you don't necessarily know that you can do this job. But if right. we don't have enough, you know, people of color auditioning for the Rockettes, because I, I would, I would venture to guess that percentage is fairly small as well, then you're not going to get mm. a great percentage of Rockettes of color because there's just not people there. So I, I just, I don't know where right. to, where to tackle it. You yeah. know what I mean? You're, you're so right. And if you think about it in Misty Copeland's world, right. that's an even smaller percentage right. in the ballet world. of people of color. You know, I, I can't, it, she's just so remarkable to me because she embraced who she was, her physique, what she looks mm-hmm. like. And she's proud to be a strong, beautiful, masculine, uh, not masculine, muscular dancer. It's like Serena and Venus mm-hmm. to me. They are what they mm-hmm. are. They are beast or on, on the tennis courts and they break barriers. And that's how I feel about Misty Copeland. And the syncopated ladies are doing mm-hmm. that. 
they're killing it. Who, which by the way, we just had Maud Arnold on the podcast. <laughs> so all of the listeners, if you love syncopated ladies, please go listen to that episode because it was such a lovely discussion with her. She's fabulous. She's so so much fun. Such a great person. Hey everyone, it's Courtney, and I have a question for you. Are you looking for the perfect gift to give your dancer this season? I have a recommendation from my feet. Get them a polish ox. They are not only amazing footwear that protect and support your feet, but they are all female owned, 100% made in the USA, and a company that truly cares to help dancers dance longer and stronger. These make your feet feel amazing, and they are from a company that you can trust. I can tell you that I love mine. And this month, Apala is running an exclusive deal on Ultimate Kits too. Take advantage of this huge deal and give the gift of happy feet this season. Visit ApollaPerformance.com to learn more. And now, let's get back to the show. I would love to continue to the, the discussion of, of kind of how, where you led us, Michelle, in the professional world of dance and, and talk about that for a little bit and, and share any personal experiences. I know, Michelle, you've, you've talked about your, your time with as a Radio City Rockette and that is there any other experiences once we've graduated on from from the studio we can -hmm. discuss college we can discuss professional career anything offhand that you know comes to your mind Sure, i've been a teacher since i was 16 i started teaching in my garage little ones that needed solos for their pageantry so yes i've been doing it a long time but i do remember when i started job hunting and you know doing the hustle in new york and new jersey i was not hired by a studio not because I wasn't qualified, but because the parents didn't want a teacher of really? color. It's there. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be there. Just like this year, people are like, racism is so bad this year. Well, no, it's been there. It's just been quieter. <laughs> it's been quieter. And it's gotten loud again because certain people have allowed it to get loud again. But I love that our youth are taking charge mm-hmm. and are more comfortable in who they are and what they believe in. And that's what's going to make the change in our dance world as well is the youth. The youth. Yes, always the youths. We used to be youths. Always TikToking. <laughs> we used to be youths. Those youths doing their TikToks, buying those tickets. <laughs> <laughs> but I generally still teach in predominantly white studios, not on purpose. I'm um, a strong tapper, and it's hard to find strong tappers in, in our area, in the New England area, down Jersey. So I tend to be the one. Mm-hmm. And they love it. They love that Miss Michelle was a rockette. They love that Miss Michelle was a Miss New Hampshire. Like they're seeing something to look up to, but not realizing it's e- even a big deal right. because of my color. Right. Yeah, I do. So I do think I your just students like, just see the accomplishment, and and that yeah, you're Leslie's taught. Yeah, me. Such, you're such a fun teacher, and you're such a good teacher, and you know you Thank do you. have all of these like amazing accolades. But like you said, they're they're not seeing that probably the struggles that it took to get there and the right you know, the challenges that you've had to get where you are. They won't recognize it until they're adults. And that's totally fine. I taught at Wagner College and those kids that I'm still in touch with are always so proud of things that I do and comment on on those things and just say, I can't believe you've done all this. We didn't know. You didn't need to know when I was your professor. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad you know now. But yeah, I think it's just more important to present myself as a professional and the teacher that I want to be. I want to be that teacher kids remember. And when they find out the cool stuff, that's just like icing on the cake. Yeah. Max, how about you? What about with your teaching? Let me think about it. This is a really loaded question. I think as far as the professional dance industry, and I'm kind of all over the place. I think teaching wise, I've worked a lot in inner city schools and with programs that provide arts education to lower income students, students in the inner city, black and brown students. So I feel like a lot of the time the students see me as the opposite, especially like this, like, brown guy coming in talking about opera like it doesn't always (laughs) but I think it's a a good it's it's a good access point for students to say like wow you're you're similar to me you're not that much older than me like I could really do this or I could really go do that or what other types of you know especially in theater and dance like there's so many different roles you can take on stage and that and and not I think students it, it can be an in and an out for me and I think for the most part it's it's been good and I think also I worked in higher ed and that's even more closely related because you're, I was closer to the student's age and I think they see me as a mentor and a peer. Um, and also I think it was very easy for me to tap in to see a lot of the kind of negative points of students going through their degree programs and feeling very 
as students of color not feeling very serviced by the university, mm -hmm. feeling like there wasn't enough roles for them, or even curricularly that there wasn't enough for them to really dig, dig into. And it, it really speaks to like the lack of diversity in teaching staffs in general, right. and also studio owners in general, because like work begats work. If you're a studio owner of color, you're gonna you're not gonna try to diversify your staff. You're going to have a diverse right. staff just based in your community, based in the people that you attract. So I think it's important to kind of, I, I'm going to really politely disagree with you, Leslie, mm -hmm. and say that I don't think it starts from the bottom mm -hmm. down. I think it stops, starts from the top okay. up. And I think like, especially studio owners, competition owners, in my research for this podcast, mm -hmm. I wanted to highlight black and brown dance competitions, owned competitions not people of color working or directing a competition weekend. I mean, owning the competition. And I couldn't think of mm -hmm. one. There's and someone. that's a problem in itself. Mm -hmm. That's a problem, right? That's the problem in itself. If there are some that I'm unaware of, my apologies, and please educate me. But that speaks to the lack of representation very directly yeah. as it affects hiring, marketing, the studio's overall experience at a competition. Yep. The first step is diversifying organizations themselves to more accurately reflect the landscape of the dance world cultural competency training for all staff, and a commitment to an anti-racist environment for all employees. Secondly, I think that pipeline uh, scholarships could be a really, a really big game changer for black and brown dancers. Imagine going to competition and receiving a scholarship to a summer program like Ailey, Philodenko, Complexions, Dance Theater of Harlem, Black da Dallas Black Dance Theater, Ballet Hispanico, Jose Limon, Jose Mateo. Imagine the doors that could open for a young dancer of color professionally, creatively, or personally. I think it would also create meaningful and unique partnerships among organizations, but that's a whole other conversation. Totally. I'm ready to have that <laughs> whenever you are. And lastly, I think as adjudicators, it's up to us too. Uh, our scores and critiques can influence how work is created and what gets competed and what gets rewarded. It's up to us to really stay diligent as well. Max, I, I agree and disagree with you on that Great. last statement. But I also want to say, whenever you decide to run for office, I'm voting. Well, no. <laughs> now, my agree and disagree with the reward system is yeah. it's dependent on the competition. Mm. Exactly. And exactly again, right. another reason I work for IDA, because I have worked for competitions where what I see is not what has been rewarded the way it may have been scored or the way mm -hmm. the judges may have thought. Mm -hmm. But again, like the Black Studio I told you about that we judged that we're killing it. That didn't come out in the top five, but there there was no better hip hop that day for sure. And I mean, real hip hop. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I saw all genres. I saw, you know, I saw breaking and and pop and lock. I saw floor work, like stuff we never mm -hmm. see because we're seeing commercial jazz used as hip hop right. now. But they weren't rewarded because my other judges that day did not understand the complexity of that genre. Or the execution. And maybe that's what I mean more. So right, right. And even like Courtney was saying before, the style, even the stylistic choices, right? And I, I, it's, I think it's great that we have some discourse. Mm -hmm. And I think what I mean by being diligent is what if the judges that you worked with had also done some of this work that we're talking right. about, really gone Agreed. to the source, really taken, yep. taken some hip hop classes, really mm -hmm. done some really uncovering of what hip hop dance or what good hip hop dance is, because I've seen great hip hop dance too. And I think some of it comes from going to clubs here in the city and, and from being with my friends and people, other people of color, like, some of it comes from that as well, that social aspect of dance. And so I mean that in the best way, that it's important. Mm -hmm. us, us as judges, we're given, I don't want to say a power, but we're given some influence yeah. into what gets awarded because people do pay attention to what gets mm -hmm. awarded and the highest this and the overall right. that. We may not never see the piece again or think about it beyond that sense, but it is rewarded in a way. So it's important for us to do our due diligence and really spend time looking at where these styles come from is it folkloric is it part of social dance is mm -hmm. it part of something that's tiktok created is it you know there's so many right. different ways now to get dance information it's up to us as judges to be very discerning about what we think and i, I agree with you totally like you saw one thing and someone else saw someone something else what if they were a little bit more versed in this thing wouldn't that be a more fair judging panel yeah. well so here's the other issue so what do you do when you go to judge a competition and in the other category is flamenco right. oh i've been there i i know my mom's from spain i'm not great at flamenco but i know what it's supposed to look and sound like but what do, what do you do how do you score that and i know that i've been on panels where judges tend to go high or that medium mm -hmm. high because they don't know what they're doing so they don't want to say it's right. bad but they don't have anything to say about it that's not fair to those dancers either yeah, yeah. 
That's a me. great point. And sometimes it is a learning experience for everyone, right? I, I, when I first saw clogging in competition, I was like mind yeah. blown. And <laughs> so I had to good. spend some time to really learn yeah. what, like exactly what you're saying, what makes this dance style strong or weak? What are we looking for here? I think as dancers, we can all, and teachers, we can all look at those things and say like, here's the general foundation of what I'm seeing and what I want to correct. But you're right. There's no way that one person is going to be versed enough in every right. style, especially very specific ones. Right to ever make the most informed decision. But and Max, I, I the, await your handbook with oh the styles <laughs> in the cheat seat that we will have at the IDA oh, <laughs> seminar. Oh my God. Actually, you, know, you know who you should ask about is uh, Christina Balinski is the cheat sheet queen. Oh yeah, she always she, has a cheat sheet. Uh, we know I learned, yeah, it's talked about on this incredible. podcast like every episode. Constantly. Well, and All I feel Max. All the time. Max, you know where Christina's from, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Hey. Calling it back. It's the Northeast babies. That's what it you is. You know, we dance together. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I love it. Small dance world. That's wild. They're not the smallest world, truly. And I think, you know, we just you just said, you know, we, we talk about it all the time. Dance world is really small. But we also have at IDA, we employ dancers who do their research. These two people on this podcast right, right now, they know dance history. They've studied it. They've, they've taken it upon themselves to look into the history of certain dance styles, you know, which are not taught a lot of times in college programs and are surely not taught, you know, at your run-of-the-mill dance studio most of the time. But I think now we, we are kind of a generation of judges who does have a little bit more background on it and who are also socially conscious enough to think, oh, I need to learn about this before I can speak in any way intelligently about this instead of kind of that blanket, well, don't know what this is, so I'm going to score it this way. You know, I think there, there is always... I believe with the people that we work with, you know, that desire to learn more and, and to do to do it right, to do it service, you know. I'm just going to hype up Courtney and her team again, because they do that. I don't this maybe this is a behind the scenes thing that people aren't supposed to know about. <laughs> but when they when they they'll ask you specifically, we're looking for people with strong task right. experience, hoofing experience. We're looking mm-hmm. for people with acro experience. And so, I mean, exactly kind of supporting us all right. We're we are a group of people who have these specialties. We can assess our own knowledge of these styles very well. And I think I want to say, you know, kudos to Courtney and her team to really making that a platform and saying, no, we, we're really looking for people who would consider themselves a tap expert, an acro expert, a clogging right. expert, whatever it is. And that makes the world a difference, too. That makes and a I'm huge gonna difference. I'm going to piggyback off of Max because I know I recommended to people recently and only because I knew their skills were at a certain level that they could be considered a ballet expert. And my other friend is just such a well-rounded teacher that I thought they would be assets to the company. I have a lot of friends that judge, but I I know, I think I know what IDA is trying to do. And we're like the premier go-to judges. So if I'm going to recommend people to the company, I need to recommend people that I think are credible and their knowledge is is huge. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, guys. You guys are so sweet. Everyone's just... (laughs) I can't wait for my merch. I'm going to give you all the merch, girl. in this industry we don't i don't see that anywhere else i really don't correct you never know who's going to be on this panel with you you never know their their background like it sometimes it sometimes it works out really great and sometimes you've never met this person and you know that you just don't know their experience you barely hear their voice they're sitting across the you know the way but that's also something you're entering into when you enter competition Mm -hmm. you don't you don't know the judges until maybe the week before if they announce it at the competition but that's why I always talk about during the weekends, I always say, like, listen to what we're saying, listen to what we're rewarding, listen to the things that were the tips that we're giving during our specials, because you can learn a lot about us yeah. very quickly. Even if we went to the same school or we have similar training, yeah. we're looking for very different things. Yeah. And since we're on the, the judging talk for a moment, I, I think that what's important for the competition industry to continue to implement change in, in their staffing and their casting, so to say. You know, there have been a handful of times where a competition has come to me and requested a specific type of judge, a a judge that has a knowledge or expertise, catering to the fact that they know that this competition is going to have a lot of hip hop and, you know, things like that. I think that that is important for our industry to continue to do because, like you said, I mean, our goal is our job is hard and our, our goal is to be educated and knowledgeable, at least I would say at least in the basics of everything, like for your example, Michelle, of like flamenco dance or or any cultural dance that we've seen hit the stage. I mean, I'm not an expert in it. Irish step. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Clogging, like you said. I mean, we have we have to know a little bit of basics yep. that'll get us by. 
And again, if, if it feels like it's really worth it for the competition company to be like, okay, we have like 50 flamenco numbers coming. I need mm-hmm. a flamenco judge on this panel that also knows a little bit of ballet and a little bit of jazz. And we, you know, mm-hmm. we make it happen. So, you know, I think that I think that those things in, in the industry as well is really important. And we'll also continue to hire people of color and hire different background, you know, people with different backgrounds from different upbringings and that's important for our dancers around the country, regardless of where the event is taking place, to experience. Because sometimes we get stuck in our bubble and we get stuck in that in that state that we grew up in. And we don't get to, like we talked about at the very beginning, we didn't even get to see a person of color until we branched out of our state. We, as as the competition industry, can start bringing that to the people and exposing them to, you know, new dancers to look up to, new mentors, new people to Google and Instagram and, and you know, inspire. So I think that's another important part of our industry that we have to kind of continue to move forward with. Being the only white voice here, I've been very quiet. This is not my story to tell. It is not my experience to tell. So I've been really listening. And I know that there are, just because I know this from experience, many studio owners out there, competition owners, mm-hmm. dance-related businesses who, for whatever reason, do not have a diverse staff, do not have a diverse anything. Whether that's on purpose or not, I would venture to say it's probably not on purpose. My question is, how do people in that position who want to be an ally, who want to do this work, how do they begin and how do they create something in their culture that is diverse without it feeling like or appearing to be tokenism? Because that is a thing that has happened that we have witnessed globally this mm-hmm. past summer. I mean, I'm sure it's happened previously, but a lot of people in the media and businesses and companies in the media latched on to this, okay, well, we have to diversify. Oh my gosh, one, two, three, go. And it mm-hmm. was a knee-jerk reaction to a situation that they felt uncomfortable with. And that does not have a good optic, doesn't have good optics. And I know there are people out there who want, who truly do want to make a change, but do not want to appear as if they're disingenuous. How would, how help us? <laughs> Well, start the easy way. Take your kids to a convention. That's the easy way to start. There's generally one or two people that are different ethnicities at a convention to, that your kids can dance with. And then start listening to feedback from your students. Which teachers did they like? What did they gra- What style did they gravitate toward? You know, you could start there and then they can start introducing new teachers possibly into their studio in that fashion instead of seeming like, oh my God, we don't have anybody that's brown, black, yellow, green in our studio. We need to get someone. Just Expose your students yeah. first. Take them to someplace they've never been. Try it. Even if it's, you know, when this pandemic's over, bring your kids to New York to Steps. Yeah. Take them to BDC. Try out a new teacher. That Experience it. And maybe that's the first time experience for a teacher as well. Right. A studio owner may never have either. So, I mean, do it for your students, but do it for yourself. Totally. I'm taking notes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make Max sure I get all my thoughts school. out here. here we go. He um, is. I would say first is check your social circle. If you have we just were talking about how small the dance world is, right? So you may not have a plethora of, you know, pre-screened judges at your fingertips, even though you do <laughs> with IDA. <laughs> but you may not, but like just globally or locally, you may not have that, like you're saying, right, Leslie, right. diverse candidacy amongst who you know. Who you know. Part of this like distance learning is that that's gone now. You can have somebody from anywhere, someone from your friend from tour, someone who this, like it can be that. I have students all the time that people are like, oh, do you know anyone that teaches this or anyone Hamilton related? I'm like, oh, okay, I have a few people, this and that. So check your social circle. And I think the second, and and I've been asked several times by competitions, who do you know? Who would you recommend for this? That is of color where we are looking to make this a mission to diversify. Mm -hmm. And that's my second point is to make it a mission to say, we want to add 20% more faculty of color. We want to, like you were saying, we want to explore a few other options. We want to go to other conventions that we haven't been to before that maybe focus in other styles. Um, so make it a mission, make it a tangible goal for you as well. Um, and I, th- I think third is retention and or training. Like once you get these teachers of color, educators of color, what makes them stay? What's the, what's the buy-in for them um, beyond? And then it doesn't feel like tokenism, mm-hmm. right? If I feel like I'm building this community and, and just very quickly, I went to this conference like many years ago and I had the same conversation with someone who was much older than me. And that was kind of the purpose was to have this like mentorship. And it was specifically for people of color. And I asked a very similar question. How do you, you know, vet people? How do you make this not feel like you're really tokenizing people and their and their identities? And this older gentleman said, you know, build the community. The community will build this for you. If you go and you start with one person and two people and you ask and you really cultivate a community, 
then you'll never be, then you'll never lack for this like excellence that we're looking for, right? It builds within itself and, and those people follow themselves. And, and like we're talking about now, we all have these idiot, this like pathways to the same goal. So I think it's important to, to make it a mission, make it retentive, you know, retentive, make it something where people are retaining and staying and you're really building a community that way. Because I think that shows your dancers also that you value uh, diversification. Max, I'm going to completely agree with you with that because I'm just thinking the teachers Leslie and I know, the teachers that are in my circle, the teachers that Courtney knows. I think all of our circles are very diverse. And I know that all of us have been asked for a teacher and I've been able to do male, female, of color, non, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. And I think what you said makes so much sense. It's the circles that we cultivate that we can give. And new voices. That's what you're yeah. kind of saying yeah. as well is new people. You know, maybe I don't have 10 years experience uh, teaching ballet, but I have a really great insight into like mm-hmm. house dance or club dance or uh, the Baltimore underground scene. You know what I mean? Like these are very, but it's a thing, right? Like I right. wouldn't know how to do that. But, um, or even like I worked for a theater that was putting on Dance Nation, which is a whole show about dance um, convention or dance competitions. And I got tapped because of my posts on it, on the internet and whatever. <laughs> and I wasn't part of the circle, but I got into it because someone knew my name through someone else through, you know what I mean? Like right. that's how this works and that's how it happens. And I think that organicness isn't, we'll never feel tokeny if it's organic. Awesome. Oh, I like tokeny. Yeah. Token. I don't, I don't like tokeny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. I agree, Max. We didn't really talk any about like casting in the professional world, which I think is a huge, like race is a big topic in in that as well and I know I've personally as a professional dancer experienced a handful of of those situations is there anything offhand that you feel is important to share in regards to that anyone this is a really loaded question about casting and and like it <laughs> and really that's why I was passing on brings <laughs> a lot there's a lot of different moving parts here organizations like see our truths and we see you w-a-t have explained the educational practices and organizational structures that protect racism in casting and hiring when it comes to theater. I do think there's a lot of that applies to dance organizations as well. Mm. They offer detailed guidelines of training, hiring methods, ongoing assessment, and oversight committees to create a more inclusive and diverse industry. There's a few solutions that I think parallel or intersect with the dance world as well. First, the importance of centering new work from diverse creators looking beyond canonical work to amplify new voices. This, in turn, brings in new audiences. Mm. Second is a, mesh, is a mission for authenticity, hiring artists of color on stage, behind the scenes, directing, and especially if the piece pertains to a shared experience. This is important, and it ultimately affects who auditions and who is cast. Mm-hmm. And third, there's a recurring demand for ongoing assessment and committee oversight to ensure that goals are attained. I think this keeps accountability very transparent. Like we're talking about, I don't know, you know, how many people of color have worked on this in here or there. Like that's not tracked usually, Mm -hmm. but there's a major shift for organizations to diversify. And I think this quantifies their efforts and invites others to track the progress. As far as my own experience, I will say that um, being more racially ambiguous, I have been asked to portray a wide variety Mm -hmm. of races and ethnicities on stage and in my training. And as a young performer, how do you say no to a job or to a teacher that asks you to do these things? And I think we're trying to cultivate and build an industry where the next generation doesn't have to. Yeah, Uh, Max, I'm going to agree with you on that. I'm not, I've been out of performing for a long time, but my very, very good friend is light-skinned black male. And he has been asked to play multiple ethnicities Mm -hmm. because they don't know where to put him. Instead of just seeing him as the person that he is, they try to plug him into a track. And he has five Broadway shows, but it's still not... The last thing he did was the most authentic for him. And it was a show that was black written and black directed. What show was it? I'm curious. Thoughts of a Colored mm-hmm. Man. And it was, it premiered up in Syracuse and we're hoping to bring it to cool. Broadway. But he's been, like you, has been used in different places as different things that are not necessarily him. But I hear you on that one. I've seen the struggle from my friends. Yeah. And Leslie knows who I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, it's, it's a big discussion and I've personally experienced it as well as and like you like you just said michelle like your friend i mean no one knows where to put me and if you've seen me before i mm-hmm. some people might initially think oh she's hispanic or oh she's white or oh she's italian and i'm all of those things so you know mm-hmm. it's it's hard with i think that in the industry we don't slap our ethnicity on our resume 
and everyone when you when you enter the professional world you're very much being judged by what you look like and what you can be uh what can you can portray on stage or in a commercial especially when it comes I, I, yeah go max quick quickly i want to i want to talk about how like, i just want to say like you're saying what what you pass mm-hmm. for right to the casting director yeah. right to the Correct. casting director the people in charge of making these right. calls so not to i don't no, want to derail you but that's one of the ins that we're talking yeah. about, right? So go, no, I mean, that's go exactly it. And you hit the nail on the head. Like, for whom? I mean, who who is one to decide if I fit in that category? And I I was literally talking about this with Leslie last week. I was talking about it with multiple friends in the industry about something last week. Like, it's happened to me in my entire 10 years of performing. And like, to give some perspective as to like, well, what shows can we talk about? I'm never white enough for hairspray. That's a part. That's an example for me. Oh. I'm not wide enough for hair to be in hairspray, which is a dream show of mine. I'd love to be in hairspray. You would be amazing. I'd love would to be, be really the nicest, cute, kids. nicest kids. We would be you such cute, nicest kids. With me, you would be <laughs> like you give totally me a beehive be hair and yes. like you know whatever. But I'm also not Hispanic enough sometimes to be a shark in West Side Story, even though I have many times. But you know, a lot of people. Oh well, you're not you're not Hispanic enough for this. You're not white enough for this. And then I don't really have a place. And like in West Side Story's defense, that has been like the prime job in my career. And because of my ambiguous look, I was able to swing both sides of the jets and the sharks. And I think a lot of people will look at that as being like a benefit. Like, oh, well, you can be moldable. You can you can enter into these different roles. And yes, yes and no. Like, yes, I can. But it also hinders me in scenarios like hairspray where I'm not white enough. You know, so it's mm-hmm. it's it's a really hard uh, position for some of us where we aren't just one or the other and we're kind of ambiguous to for casting purposes. And and it's hard to navigate and understand that. You know, I, I walked into this industry at 18 years old trying to understand why I wasn't getting callbacks and why I wasn't booking right. a job. And it, it really comes down to what you look like, how tall you are. And it's not even mm-hmm. it doesn't come down to your talent because everyone's talented in their own way. When you get to the end, it comes down to who's fitting in the costume. Do you look ethnic enough? Are you white? You know what yep. I mean? It's it's very interesting to kind of navigate. And I think it's important for parents and dancers to hear that. So they're not just kind of like culture shocked when they break in. So Courtney, I think that's one of the reasons you've done what you've done. You, you're a powerhouse in this field right now. You are bringing a diverse group of people together. I want to say I find Lin-Manuel Miranda to be that mm-hmm. type of person in this industry yes. who... People are, are, you know, were hating on Hamilton. I mean, if you're a theater person, we'd love Hamilton. But if you don't, well, that's not true to history. Right. That's the argument. Well, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, so I, a lot of props. I, I, it must have been, you know, in the heights for him yep. as well, of course. And um, for him to write what he writes and see it the way he sees it is, uh, it's, a, it's a risk. Absolutely. E- even now, it's a risk. So I appreciate you, Courtney, for taking oh, risks. Thanks. And Lynn Manuel Miranda, if you're listening to our <laughs> oh, podcast, so. we appreciate you. We love you. you. <laughs> and Courtney could be in any of your shows. <laughs> and has been. You've been in the Heights. Yeah. <laughs> Leslie could be I a king. could totally be the king. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, guys, that was such a lovely, productive conversation. And I'm so thankful that we got to hear from both of you today. And Leslie, thank you for being a great listener and ally to us as well. I hate to say it like that, but I know it's a little bit, your dance world is a little bit different than what we've had. Our experiences is what I mean. So I've worked with you for years now and I I truly love having you as an ally. Well, thank you. For all the (laughs) things that we do. For all the things that we do. And Courtney, I just love you for bringing all this fun stuff together. I love you too. (laughs) Always, always. All the love. Max, I just love you. I can't wait to vote for you. I'll I'll put you guys on a panel together. That'd be great. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So we, I mean, you guys have been on the pod before, so we normally have uh, our guests lead us out with any final thoughts and any uh, words that you'd like to to share to lead us out of this episode. I'm just happy that we're having an open conversation and a discussion about what our world, our dance world, and our world moving forward looks like, and we're here to make it a better place through the arts. So thank you for having this great discussion. Art advocacy has never been more important, and I think. Like I was talking about before, you can't look away at this point. You can't feign ignorance. This has been, I've heard this year, been called the, the 2020 Civil Rights Movement, and, I, and I'm so proud to be a part of it. Here in Philadelphia, we had protests every day for months and, you know, national news coverage on it around, around where I live. 
And I think that turned me into such an activist and such a social impact person, like really looking at this and, and using education as the tool to really unlock it. And I want to push kids towards that. I want to push students towards that. So even though I was talking a little bit before about not using this this year as, as like a caveat, I also don't want to shy people away from it. This is a really important time. And this is one of the biggest global civil rights movements ever. So you have to, we have to take advantage of that as educators. We know the competition circuit is a very specific audience. So just be mindful of that. Here in Philadelphia, I want to say Black Lives Matter. I want to say fun Black futures. I want to say, you know, be you, be proud. There's so much out there to do and, and be the expert that you can be in whatever style you choose. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us for episode 41. You can find our guests on social media, Michelle at Michelle Tolson and Max at MX underscore VSP. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Podcasts so you don't miss out on our upcoming episodes releasing every Thursday throughout the dance season. The 2021 competition season is right around the corner, and one thing you'll definitely need before you hit the stage is a gorgeous costume. Our season sponsor, Dance Costumes by Urzua, is here to make your custom costume dreams come true. They can create custom designs for soloists or even an entire group routine. And a very special offer for the month of December, you can receive 20% off your order with our exclusive promo code IDA20. This offer ends at the end of 2020, so head on over to their website or Instagram now at dancecostumesbyurzua.com to view all of their designs. Season 2 is in full swing with new topics, amazing interviews, and great advice. Coming up in the next few weeks, topics include age appropriateness at competition, the December edition of Q&A with Courtney, and a nostalgic look at dance competitions past. As always, we're so happy you joined us for this week's episode. Until next time, keep dancing!